Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, and welcome back to the Sustainability Leaders Forum. Yes, there will be no sneak peeks of what is coming up through pre-recorded audio this week, uh, as we are currently recording on the morning of day one of the Sustainability Leaders Forum at the Business Design Centre. It's kind of eerily quiet for the most part, um, although some sponsors and exhibitors have been here for an hour or so, kind of putting up their stands and getting ready. Uh, I'm Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, and I'll be bringing you uh, the exclusive interviews throughout day one. Uh, but joining me this morning, before uh, in the calm before the storm, so to speak, uh, is Edie's insight editor, James Everson. Hello. And our senior reporter, Sarah George. Good morning. How are you both? Bright and early. Get up here all right? Got up here all right. Um, feeling this will be a very caffeinated couple of days. Um, I know I'm meant to say on all the official two days that I'm looking forward to inspiring, um, inspiring talks and co-creation. But it's a really full-on couple of days here, so I'm also really looking forward to coffee, coffee, and more coffee. James, you yeah, you also very much always. on the coffee hype train. Yeah, I'm always a coffee fan. <laughs> more coffee, the better. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to. Uh, sort of variety of different things that we've got on and, and speaking to people about what we've got coming up in the next year. It's, it's just an, an incredible moment as I think we all appreciate. It's a really crucial forum and I'm looking forward to doing panels this afternoon on uh, business growth against uh, environmental impact and as we're describing it, addressing the elephant in the boardroom. Um, so it'll be good to get some debate on that so I'm looking forward to that. Great stuff, and, and obviously we usually start a podcast with a coming up on today's episode of the kind of voice of God that I try to put on very poorly. Um, but rather than do that, I think we should do a coming up at the SWF. Uh, and you've all kind of mentioned the, I suppose, the topics that we're happy about. Is there is there a speaker or a person or a session in particular that um, that you're you're looking forward to? Um, so so we'll kind of do it like a coming up on today's episode. So with Sarah, we'll start with you. So coming up at SLF, Sarah. I'm going to go for a cough out and go for literally the first speech that we're going to have, which is with Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland. Um, I got to listen to her speak at the Business Booster last year, and I've been following her podcast, Mothers of Invention, um, since it got started. And she just has such a presence um, on stage and is great at speaking frankly and honestly, um, while also offering solutions and making everyone feel empowered and like this is not insurmountable. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing from her. Yeah, I was going to accuse you of just looking at the first session and going, that, that'll do. But no, I completely agree. Mary's a, a fantastic um, speaker and uh, I'm actually hoping to grab some time with her before she uh, goes on stage to see if I can uh, ask a few questions, which would be great. Uh, and, and right, let's, let's do the next one. So coming up at the SLF, James. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to a couple of sessions today. Um, one that um, I think Sarah's you're actually going to be reporting on, um, but it'll be really interesting to find out about, which is beyond net zero. I think it's sort of one of the big discussion points obviously from last year. The last year was the was the setting of net zero targets, and I'm sure there's a lot of people um, in the auditorium today who, who who've done that. But it'd be great to see where they are at with that and, uh, and going beyond that. We've started to see, haven't we, sort of carbon positive. Um, announcements being made so looking forward to hearing about that and uh, and also as I was saying sort of my, my panel discussion on, on addressing the elephant in the boardroom on a business growth against environmental impact I'm really looking forward to seeing what people have to say about that. Yeah that one's under Chatham House rules so the conversation should be uh, rather juicy I'm hoping. <laughs> yes, uh, um, I did I did have Luke in the script believe it or not um, he was meant to make his kind of grand return to the to the podcast but I think he's um, 
he's uh, he's kind of getting ready to to kind of hype up the crowd as MC today before handing <laughs> over to Solitaire Townsend. So um, either yeah, that really his prioritised session is all of them. Yeah, and I his think his least prioritised session is it's, it's us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there were also rumours uh, kind of going around that he was raising money to get Big Ben to bong um, before Brexit Day, but clearly he's failed with that as well. Um, as for me, I think I'm actually looking forward to the SDG workshop. Um, we've only got 10 years left to hit them, which <laughs> is quite the task uh, in itself. Um, and I know some of the speakers in that session, like uh, Gudrun Cartwright from uh, BRGC, uh, Marcia from Relics, and, and Ben Kellard from the Cambridge Institute, they're all extremely passionate and knowledgeable on the mm. subject. So I think there's going to be lots of uh, uh, inspiring insight into that. Uh, that's if I can get into that session, of course, because um, there's a lot of people at the forum today. I think it's over like almost 300, yeah. which is uh, crazy amount of people um, and I've already got some speakers lined up that I want to interview as part of this podcast in fact uh, last night I attended Edie's kind of green finance workshop the kind of pre-conference uh, workshop which sought to deliver insight on how sustainability reporting can kind of be aligned with investor needs um, the chair for that workshop was the former chief executive of the International Integrated Reporting Council, uh, Richard Howitt, uh, and I managed to sit down with him and get his advice on the rise of climate-aware investors and to discuss the SDG workshop, actually, because he's, he's in that as well. Uh, so let's kickstart this podcast in full then with uh, interview number one with Richard Howitt. So it's the day before uh, the forum, SLF Eve, if you will, and while it's very much the calm before the storm, uh, the forum has, I suppose, unofficially kicked off today. Uh, we've been hosting a pre-SLF workshop focused on how sustainability professionals can and should engage with investors, uh, a topic that's becoming increasingly important as the investor community begins to sink its teeth into the subject matter of sustainability. The workshop featured a panel discussion with experts from CDP and Lansec uh, and breakout sessions uh, amongst delegates to outline the challenges and opportunities of engaging with investors. It was a half-day workshop and was chaired and moderated by Richard Howard, the former chief executive of the International Integrated Reporting Council. Uh, and Richard is exactly who I'm speaking to now. Uh, so Richard, thank you for joining me uh, for this podcast chat at the Business Design Centre, which is uh, eerily quiet at the moment. How, how's your day been so far? Well, it's lovely. We had a, a packed room of sustainability professionals who all understand that the investment community is waking up. To some extent, it has over a number of years, but definitely now is waking up to sustainability and ESG and want to work out how to engage with that, how to optimise that, um, how to um, uh, work more effectively in relation to, to that. And uh, the advantage of the pre-conference workshop is it was very much people round tables, sharing experiences, getting expert input, but coming up with very practical advice off the back of it. I really enjoyed taking part in it. Good. And, and what do you kind of feel in terms of the, the workshop format? What were your kind of key takeaways? And there might not be learnings because you're pretty well versed in this area, but the, the key kind of learnings that you thought really stood out from the discussions that took place today? Well, we could all learn. Um, uh, I should do, by the way. But um, there is no doubt that sustainability managers and professionals are getting increasing engagement, inquiries, questions from people who call themselves ESG investors, impact investors, uh, um, 
responsible investors, ethical investors. The titles are different, but that market, which you know has been a niche market, but arguably still is, but it's growing rapidly, and that was definitely reflected in the response from the the companies that were here. And we had, we also had a very good debate about the language that you need to use to engage with investors. And, you know, let's be honest, sustainability professionals will quite often come from different backgrounds and specialisms and don't necessarily have the tools and jargon of financial analysis and investment at their command. But having face-to-face discussions, using infographics, um, trying to present uh, consistent and common uh, indicators through tables and use of frameworks and almost accepting that it's a two-way discussion with the investor. We are partly educating the investor when we talk to them through our reports and our interactions. There was a wealth of good ideas in the room. And you mentioned the kind of many official titles that, that these this kind of niche area of investment that, that's getting, but I think the, the critical thing is that it, it, it shouldn't be a case of uh, green investors or ethical investors. It just needs to be invest in in general. It needs to be much more aware of sustainable business or, or just new kind of business practices. Um, would you would you say that that's definitely how that market needs to grow? I've been working on integrated reporting for the last year, so of course, um, my and our great dream was that this becomes part of mainstream investment, not not part of the, the niche. Always you will have leaders. That's true in any market. But um, I definitely foresee a future where the proper um, risks and opportunities associated with planetary and climate change, environmental, but social changes, social, uh, all the issues around migration, social acceptance, uh, uh, license to operate and the rest, that all of those are seen to be as real and mainstreamed in the risk and opportunities to the company and therefore absolutely what mainstream investors want to see and what's more we all know that you know probably more than half of investment is determined by computers through AI and algorithms but if the criteria of ESG are built into those algorithms, they will be part of future investment in the mainstream. And I foresee that happening more quickly than some would suggest. That's, that's good to hear. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned social, planetary, kind of all the key kind of themes that are encompassed by sustainable development goals, which are discussed occasionally today. They're a very good um, storytelling narrative to be able to articulate what a business is doing around certain um, kind of CSR points in a, in a kind of broader global frame, framework. And that's obviously um, an area where you're going to be focusing on tomorrow because you, this today isn't your only involvement with ED this week. You're going to be on that SDG workshop, um, which we're hosting. Uh, did you see it kind of overlapping how sustainable uh, business and sustainability professionals can use the SDGs to, to kind of broaden the conversations they can have with, with investors and other stakeholders? Well, I'm someone who's had the privilege of being involved in international standard setting. So I, for myself personally, I think it's terribly important to keep your feet on the ground. And so being part of discussions with individual businesses who are delivering the sustainability strategy is really important for me. And we had today, of course, a big discussion about the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, TCFD, mm. which you know, probably is a turning point in the world that climate is a financial risk issue and it's been banks and central banks that have led that discussion. But the sustainable development goals 
Uh, I think are probably the other biggest international, arguably, I think, the biggest international um, uh, prism through which we should all see. Because, you know, countries in the world, and I was at the Rio Plus 20 summit, and businesses were very much there at the table leading discussion, said that we had to uh, agree these global goals that enable sustainable development, so sustainability that we all believe in, but development for the world, genuinely um, ensuring that the wealth and prosperity that needs to be created in the world, all of the issues of fairness are delivered, but delivered in a sustainable way. And they're called global goals, and that means business absolutely can't opt out, and in fact many businesses have been leaders in trying to determine them. Um, the difficulty, I think, for people at the conference and sustainability professionals generally is that uh, normally small numbers of people in the business are bombarded by all the different requests and ideas and even acronyms, TCFD, <laughs> SDG. You can just see some people um, having a sharp intake of breath. Uh, but the good news that we'll be discussing at the conference is that as we've discussed today about materiality in the reporting, uh, um, uh, in terms of the SDGs, the companies that are perhaps leaders, this is arguable by the way, but mm -hmm. I'll put my view, um, are looking very carefully at where they have most impact in terms of the SDGs, most potential, most opportunity, uh, and they're really focusing on th in on those and where they can make a difference. The SDGs isn't just another framework to change your report. It is uh, a, a goal for change in the world to achieve societal um, objectives that we would all like to achieve. How can business, in a material way, achieve any of those goals? And that's what we're discussing at the conference. Brilliant. And, and my next question is a direct follow-up to that. And it's just quite a big question. Um, and I'm going to be asking uh, every speaker that I get a chance to uh, liaise with at, at the course of the conferences. Entered this kind of decade of deliverance, 10 years to realise the SDGs at a global level, and kind of 10 years to mitigate the, the kind of real worst impacts of climate change and put us on the trajectory to net zero emissions. How... Um, how do you think businesses need to transform over these next 10 years to, to really push towards those? It's, it's quite a big question. The, the, the analysis that has most influenced me on that is the uh, Business Commission on the Sustainable Development Goals themselves that turned on its head the traditional analysis that what we in the sustainability world we're, bringing up problems, we're bringing up obstacles, we're bringing up difficult things. Um, and what that Business Commission did was to turn that on its head and say, this is an opportunity, a $30 trillion US dollar market opportunity. And that can sound trite, but what's behind it is that as the world changes, markets will change. And clever businesses today understand that. And this is not about sustainability for the planet, first. It's about sustainability for the business. Does the business want to be operating in five and ten years' time? And without understanding that a major transition is going on in the world, which fundamentally changes markets, only companies that are alive to that and make sure they're ahead of the curve will be the ones that will prosper. And that makes, by the way, the work of the sustainability professional 
even more important and my message to people at the conference listening to the podcast stick in there you're in the right place doing the right thing uh, there's a whole network of us i've been privileged to be involved in this movement for 20 and 30 years but the, our time has come that was uh, that was my next question actually the message to the same video professional so you've, you've wrapped up this uh, this conversation nicely for me richard and i appreciate it's a busy few days ahead um <clears throat> and i imagine there's a lot of thoughts from today you want to digest and, and obviously prepare for for the sdg session as well so i'll i'll say thank you for putting some time aside to speak to me and i'll let you go on with the rest of the day so thank you richard it's been a pleasure speaking to you thank you and a pleasure to be part of this conference So Richard is uh, actually just off to that SDG workshop now, and it will be great to hear how businesses can mobilise action against the global goals uh, throughout the day. And one area where businesses have been making big strides is in the area of climate action, or goal 13 for the SDG literate amongst you. Uh, many businesses are turning to net zero emission strategies to really push the boundaries of their climate impact, uh, effectively pledging to remove their carbon contribution by a select date. And while they're not without their controversies, uh, namely a slightly alert reliance on offsetting, uh, the targets are pushing corporates towards more regenerative business models. And in fact, there are a select few organisations that are starting to move beyond net zero, either through the language of carbon negative or climate positive. And joining me now is uh, someone from one of those organisations. So Erin uh, Rizan is the Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer of Interface. So Erin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, and I think it's a, probably a good place to start then. I mean, I think our audience knows Interface quite well. Um, we speak to John Koo an awful lot, and John speaks to our audience an, an awful lot. But um, it's, it's good to finally get you on the podcast, Erin. Uh, and to start with, um, perhaps just a bit of an outline of, of what that Beyond Zero goal that, you, that, you, that Interface has in place. Sure. Our goal at Interface, we call it sort of taking back our climate. And in 2016, we set a goal that we would be a carbon negative enterprise by 2040. And for those who are real kind of carbon geeks, that means a commitment to not just um, store more carbon than we emit in the operations of the business, but across the footprint of the products that we make and our supply chain as well. Great. And um, I think it's also a good time to mention the session that you were just in. I, I kind of dropped in and out of it. Um, you were kind of on a panel discussion with some other big businesses as, as well, uh, International Airlines Group, Fast and Four, GB. Uh, what was the, what did you feel the tone of that was? It was, it was it, well, you're obviously kind of discussing these big kind of global climate megatrends and how they're redefining purpose, but what was your kind of key takeaways from it? Well, I think one of the really great and encouraging things is businesses all around are realizing that net zero is not a stopping point but that their own business strategies on climate need to go beyond net zero. Um, simultaneously, I think there was a really interesting conversation about the role that offsets play in either helping you um, cover some of the gaps to that, but that offsetting you know, can't be kind of the primary strategy. And so unlike five years ago, when we came out with our carbon negative commitment, I think what was really great is to see some of the other panel companies talking at that same level of ambition. And the fact that we now can name other companies like Microsoft and others who've made commitments not just kind of beyond their scope, not just beyond net zero to negative, but also maybe looking at historical emissions, I think should kind of send a message to the rest of the corporate sustainability leaders 
about what ambition is increasingly being, you know, embraced amongst the business community. Yeah, you mentioned the the Microsoft goal there, and I think AstraZeneca and Starbucks to some extent, although theirs is less kind of time bound. They haven't quite figured out um, the the timeframes for it. Are, are free, probably like in the last few months that have done it. And we noticed, you know, the UK set its net zero target into law and businesses kind of followed suit with very like, much quicker timeframes, which they were obviously able to do. Um, I think this raft of new carbon negative, climate positive, uh, uh, whatever the language is, um, is kind of that next step that you just mentioned. So are you are you anticipating a lot more businesses reaching out to you to ask how, you know, Interface said it? Are you, are you, do you see that's the transition that we're heading on? Absolutely. I mean, uh, lots of our businesses and our customers who are businesses. So as a flooring company, you know, we're selling to the world's largest banks, to a lot of tech companies in the U.S., and several of them have reached out and, you know, have a range of questions about how to you get your CEO to agree to this, what's the process, what were some things that were helpful in helping you set that target. And so what's encouraging about those specific conversations is to know how many people are considering making that jump and um, how many are doing kind of the diligence to reach out to other people who've been through it and say, help me kind of accelerate or learn about what was successful. So I think that's very encouraging. Um, at the same time, one thing that we tell other businesses who are there is don't be too precious about fixating on the right level of commitment and the specifics because I think action at this point is much more important than commitment. So what we've said is if you're going to take on a very large carbon negative commitment, be equally focused on the first thing that you can say a year after to show that action is happening, not just you know, to kind of deliver on that market-based commitment that you've made, but to show your employees, to show your customers that the pathway is less about commitment and more about what action you mobilize as a result of that commitment. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. I'm, I'm noticing a lot of stories that come into our news desk right now are, are organizations that one of their facilities or the whole facility is part of it. They're, you know, they're kind of celebrating the fact that it's kind of achieved carbon neutrality, which you know, has a lot of leeways for it. it kind of almost is directly translatable to net zero. Um, and they they seem to focus on that point, the carbon neutrality and and the fact that it was reached by offsets more so than outlining how they reduced emissions there in the first place. So I, I fully appreciate the need for action, but there also need to have a bit of a hierarchy of, of the actions that should be in place. Absolutely. I mean, so an action example for us and one that I think kind of goes beyond the idea of offsetting is, you know, we make thousands of products globally. And typically when we launch a product, we put a lot of time and energy into the design, the sustainability and the performance of those products. And we launch fully created products that are available for sale on an annual basis. Right. So when we made a commitment that we were going to move towards carbon negative in the business, it made sense for us to follow that really quickly with a prototype. And the prototype was the first carbon negative carpet tile. And we couldn't commercialize it, but we did the following year commercialize the backing component of that being the first company to sort of launch a line of products with carbon negative backing. And that's what I mean. So we could have gone down this mm. you know, pathway of saying um, everything that we do as a product is immediately carbon negative just by offsetting. Um, and I think, you know, like, as we know, I think offsets are legitimate, 
But this idea of sort of how do you make transformational change in your business? How do the products fundamentally sort of live up to being a carbon negative or being part of a carbon negative approach? We felt like it was more important to sort of show something first, to take an immediate action that was focused on reducing, changing the raw materials, fundamentally delivering on where we thought that innovation should go versus just an offsetting approach. Um, and so I think, you know, companies have to decide what's appropriate, but ultimately we're not going to define a carbon negative approach as a business as being completely reliant on offsets. No, I think that's, I think that's most kind of sustainability experts and, and professionals talk to. I think, yeah, they realize offsetting has a place at the table because there are unavoidable emissions, but it shouldn't be the first uh, call of action. And, and Aaron, just finally then, two questions that I'm asking everyone uh, I'm hoping to speak to today. So Boris Johnson's kind of kicked off the COP26 stuff today, uh, calling 2020 the year of climate action. Um, and we're in a decade, essentially, of deliverance towards sustainable development goals and a big chunk of decarbonisation towards the Paris Agreement. So how do you think that businesses will need to transform over this decade to give the world a fair shot at those, those big kind of global frameworks? I think there's, you know, two opportunities that businesses really have. The first is raising their level of ambition beyond net zero. So, you know, if if we have the opportunity to, to sort of look at what business can do, I think a big part of it is look at your carbon strategy and ask yourself, do we have the right level of ambition? Um, what can we do that's beyond net zero as a business, number one? Number two as a business, how can we influence those in our immediate business ecosystem? Interface, my company, is only a billion dollar company, right? If we become carbon negative in 10 years, it's not going to change the trajectory of the global carbon emissions on the planet. But if we are able to influence our supply chain, if we're able to influence our customers to make specifications in their purchasing agreements to only ask for carbon negative products, we can drive pretty significant change in the built environment space, which in and of itself is a pretty significant source of global carbon emissions. So ask yourself not just what you can do to raise your level of ambition, but in your immediate business ecosystem, what can you do to influence those other businesses? And I think the third is, we're all going to need to step up our efforts on policy. You know, in the early days of sustainability, I think many companies were agnostic on environmental policy. They didn't view it as their role in advocating for what the future should be. They just said, we'll focus on our business. Now we can't sit on the sidelines. So as conversations emerge around carbon pricing, around how we'll define what sorts of products uh, should be sustainable and therefore available for government procurement, we as companies can't sit on the sidelines. And we increasingly need to engage in those policy conversations around what are the right mechanisms to not just support our business becoming carbon negative, but our industry, our customers. And that will require, I think, more courage but also more resources. A great example is Interface over the last two years has engaged a lobbyist in the state of California to get actively involved in driving the procurement definitions in the state of California so that that ninth, 10th largest world economy is only procuring products that are at least carbon neutral or beyond. Great stuff. And as a follow-up then, you mentioned how a business needs to transform. How does that change the role of a sustainability professional uh, within that business? What what kind of new skills do the GC developing for them? I think you know we're we're moving away from this era of sort of of sort of ahead of sustainability 
um, being heavily focused on communicating goals and setting goals and targets and moving into the role of that person being much more of an advocate. Um, so, you know, I, my background training is actually environmental law, so I kind of sit squarely in a place where I have some good trained advocacy skills. But increasingly, you know, I'm talking to the, our CEO and our leadership team about how can interface exercise much more of a leadership role in the built environment space. How do we go beyond just what we have to do to deliver the plan of being carbon negative and take those lessons to the others in our industry? And sometimes that requires really uncomfortable conversations, like potentially being open about the formula for creating carbon negative products. And how do we create a system where that could be shared to competitors, but we capture some value, but we're not completely secret about that? Because if we do wish to really kind of ignite this transformation in the built environment space, we can't do that by being secret about all the great things that we've learned. And that's a real challenge, I think, for a conventional business model. So getting buy-in, you know, really developing the value proposition for a very open approach to innovation, for example, is one area where I think we all still have some work to do. Great stuff, open advocacy, um, I really like that. Um, thank you, Erin, uh, for your time. Um, I've realized I've kind of taken your whole networking break so far, so I'm sure there's five minutes to be able to go around and speak to people. Uh, so thank you for your time. Thank you, I'm gonna do some speed networking. Yeah, no, do, please do. <laughs> I'm, I'm also off to see if I can find some other people to speak to as well. Well, after lunch on day one of the forum, uh, in fact, we've just finished the second batch of the workshops. I uh, managed to sneak in and hear a bit of the Collaborating for Success workshop and uh, was so intrigued uh, with some of the speakers and what they had to say that I've, I've grabbed two of them uh, from their coffee break right now to talk to me. Uh, so Michael Alexander, the Global Head of Water, Environment uh, and Agriculture Sustainability at Diageo and uh, Ruth Roma, the Private Sector Advisor for WaterAid. Welcome to uh, the Glamorous Sustainable Business Cover podcast studio. Uh, which is otherwise just a, a storage room. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your coffee to come speak to me. Thanks. Great. Um, and like I said, I, I wanted to kind of speak to you because I, I found the topic of that workshop really interesting, the Collaborating for Success uh, panel. And collaborating's always been, since I've been working at Edie for almost five years now, collaboration's still a buzzword. It's still what people say needs to happen, and we're seeing examples of it happen. But clearly, I think it's, a, it's an area where businesses feel more can can happen so you 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 two were sitting on a panel with delegates from MS and and Earthwatch but perhaps a good place to start before we touch on that panel is how um both Diageo and WaterAid have worked with each other in the past I think Ruth maybe do you want to give a bit of an overview for that sure um so we are just coming up to the end of our five-year full MOU with Diageo um it's a global MOU and then we have some um local um, MOUs in place as well in some of the countries we work in where Diageo operates. Um, so we're at a stage where we're now thinking about how that goes forward into the next five years potentially and exploring those ideas together. Um, so Diageo is one of our leading companies we work with um, in the beverage space and very much got washed central to its um, vision and mission of what it's trying to achieve. So therefore a natural partner with us, which is great. And, and Ruth, in terms of the partnerships that you look for, what, what are the kind of main expertise or, or benefits that you hope to kind of glean from them in, through the lens of like sustainable action? So I touched on some of this in our, in our um, panel just before. You know, 
and, and many of the other partners talked about it as well, um, having a central purpose and vision that's aligned is crucial. Um, and you know the courting process, I think I, I picked up from the discussion, you need to be ready to have a courting relationship, check that it works, check that you're both aligned on the same direction and path. And then if it doesn't work, be ready to stop it and haul it and, and think about something different. And uh, um, Michael, then a question to you, um, pretty much the same question, you know, what do you aim to, and Diageo aim to get from these type of partnerships with charities like WaterAid? Yeah, well, we actually have, uh, at Diageo, have very few kind of global uh, strategic partnerships. We have one with WaterAid and we have one with uh, Care International. And I think we're, to Ruth's point, we're very selective about where we would uh, engage on that kind of global level and, and uh, develop a invest in a relationship in the long term. And we've done this with WaterAid previously to the strategic partnership. We had kind of operational projects in sub-Saharan Africa where we're working on providing clean access to clean water and sanitation wash um, to areas relevant to our supply chain in, in those countries. And then we developed that over time to actually recognize that there was a big advantage and big benefits to both parties on working together more because we kind of aligned on our objectives and our passion and our energy for this and we saw the advantages the very important strategic advantages of uh, working more formally with uh, water aid across the board and that was you know that was that happened five years ago and it's gone from strength to strength it's had its ups and downs inevitably but it's you know it's it's built a good solid relationship and a bit of trust and confidence in working together. Great stuff, and yeah, I think five years is a, is a testament to, to what would you call a successful partnership, and that was the, the theme of the, the panel you're on, Collaborating for Success. Uh, it's quite an open-ended question, but based on, on the, the panel discussions and the, the workshops you're involved in, the roundtables, uh, coming out of that, what, what's your kind of opinion on what successful collaboration now looks like based on those discussions? Well, it, it goes back to your earlier point. You said you've been, for five years you've been hearing people talk about collaborations and a bit of a buzzword and... and quite vague I think uh, in that time certainly I've been working on collaborations it's probably about 10-15 years now there's much higher expectations and much quicker results and less talk so the, you know I think there's been a certain amount of criticism and observation that there's too many too much talking and not enough action in some collaborations now collaborations are all different you get lots of different types of collaborations so I'm generalizing obviously but but what I'm trying to explain is that I think now there's a, a more sense of urgency to, to move from getting together and understanding that we have common shared problems and we need to do something together to action and to investment and to measurement and impact and to really scale up some of the some of the collaborations and, and the projects that we've got. So that collaboration has moved from being a warm and kind of uh, a creative kind of backdrop and framework to which talk to each other to a, a much more kind of fundamental need to drive action now and to prove the success and the and the return of investment if you like in that collaboration so it has changed a lot the, the kind of narrative around collaboration and I think uh, that focus and that determination to get things done has has really accelerated and then Ruth from from WaterAid's point of view would you would you kind of echo their sentiments that collaboration has has changed and what success looks like starting to be redefined um, so I think in the time I've been at Wartrade, maybe the last three years, I've seen a bit of an evolution of different types of partnerships. You know, we have a lot of um, philanthropic partnerships, um, which are really important for our core funding for Wartrade. But there's been a real movement to, towards these more strategic partnerships where companies are wanting to deliver impact and value, as, as Michael was saying. And building on Michael's point about like the time is now, I think for partnerships that already have a good base of foundation and trust, 
you know, it's a really crucial time at the moment with all the kind of new announcements and, and companies making big ambitions and the SDGs um, kind of goals looming. Um, it's about working with those partners you already have a good relationship with and building on that and scaling and doing more. Brilliant. And Michael, I want to touch on a point that um, you brought up when I was actually sitting in on the session. And you mentioned about, you know, some people would maybe ask you around uh, some of your decisions to branch out operations into uh, into nations where water is a risk, that, you know, there's water stress um, happening across that nation. And you, you kind of mentioned that it, it was a chance for Diario to yeah. kind of impact in a positive manner and, and perhaps start to reverse some of that, that degradation um, based on water. Uh, did you feel that that's where leadership is heading? Um, it's starting to look much more outside your four own walls and how you can impact the value chain in the communities that you interact with? Yeah, no. So Diageo makes brands, you know, like Johnny Walker or Smirnoff or Guinness, and we have huge supply chains around the world. And uh, we operate in about 30 countries, 150 manufacturing sites. So that's a big responsibility in itself. But to your point, beyond that, in the supply chains up and down from what we call from grain to glass, from the very growing of the raw materials in the ground to the disposal and the enjoyment uh, at the end of that, uh, is absolutely sort of, sort of fundamental to being a good corporate responsibility in terms of sustainability. Uh, and we've been absolutely f- uh, very focused on understanding, firstly, to look in our own operations. You know, So the first maybe five years of our uh, now 15-year strategy has been to get our own uh, house in order and uh, focus on carbon emissions and water and and waste and all the all the other issues that we face but equally over the last five to eight years we've broadened that out along our supply chain and recognized that we can influence have much greater impact across our suppliers and even with our consumers and with our tier three four five suppliers the whole complexity of those big global supply chains and i think that's uh, for big uh, companies, global companies, which have uh, a kind of a multi-dimensional supply chain. There is a big challenge there. It's a big risk because of the complexities of that. But equally, it's a big opportunity to have impact. So we can have big impact and, and through both our supply chains and through working with our brands and our consumers. So I think there's a huge opportunity there going forward. But uh, companies just can't walk away when things get difficult. We've got to address those issues. We've got to influence across our supply chains and, and have the impact that we want to have. Okay. And Ruth, um, I've noticed a trend. In fact, I, 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 have, I remember having a conversation with um, a member of one of our 30 under 30 like, upcoming sustainability stars, so to speak, about what I felt would be like the next big things. We had plastics and then the zeitgeist kind of moved to net zero and carbon emissions and i i'm of the opinion that this is the kind of year of nature it's the it's the year where people get much more aware of the the potential of nature in terms of reversing climate change or at least mitigating some of the most severe impacts and i think a lot of that's focused on biodiversity in the sense of trees and rewilding and offsetting debate is, is coming around do you do you feel that water very much has a place at that table in terms of how businesses should be looking at water through the lens of regenerative business practices rather than just mitigation? Yeah, definitely. Water obviously is central key ecosystem service, fundamental to people, planet and profit and businesses profitability. Um, so I think, you know, in this era where 
um, biodiversity is becoming a bit more in vogue and a bit more fashionable, um, it's Waterway's mission and task to try and, you know, re-message how we're, how we're pitching wash, water sanitation and hygiene, and linking it back into ecosystem services. If you have happy, healthy people, they rely on water, and the water needs to come from the environment. And if we're not looking after that environment effectively, then you're not going to have people and businesses prospering. So I think it's really central for us to re, uh, kind of re-narrative that discussion. Um, yeah. Great. And the last two questions are for both you, and I'm sure the listeners are absolutely sick of me asking this, but I am asking them all. So, um, uh, Michael, we should start with you. Um, how do you think businesses will need to transform over this decade uh, in order to give the world a kind of fair shot at the SDGs, which you mentioned in the Paris Agreement as well? What, what do you think will be different about business from today? Well, you know, from, from our business and, and from my experience, I think there's the, the, the scale and the pace of change has never been quicker. Uh, and I think that is just only going to get quicker and quicker and quicker and accelerate. I think uh, expectations on business are as big, as big uh, contributors to the solution as well as the problem to be able to uh, embed that the sustainability agenda within their core business systems and processes and, and core to their kind of business growth will be absolutely fundamental. So I think the expectations of stakeholders, whether it's investors or consumers or NGOs or citizens, whoever it is, I think is is growing the whole time. And I think there will be a huge uh, acceleration, as I said, of expectations and what businesses need to do here. So so there's no kind of sitting back and seeing what happens. There's, there's a massive, massive uh, uh, energy behind this uh, agenda now that wasn't there five years ago, whether it's in climate or plastics or biodiversity or water, whatever it is. They're all interconnected. They're absolutely all interconnected. And businesses recognize that. And I think businesses recognize that they have an obligation now to address some of the, the biggest issues we face. And uh, Ruth, I suppose from the outside looking in, do you see anything that you feel businesses will be fundamentally different about 10 years time looking ahead? I think more and more we're seeing from our partners that businesses are recognised they need to be resilient to be in business in the future. So whether it's resilience from in, you know, in, um, changes in climate change um, and access to water. So whenever we're working with a company, we first will start by saying, do your workers have wash in the workplace? Um, and then we progress into, do they have wash in the supply chain? And then do they have wash in the community? So businesses are starting to, and I think need to faster, think broader than just their immediate fence line, I think outside their operations so they can stay in business in the future. And I think they're really receptive because they want to be in business in the future. Great. And the final question then, um, and it's the same, but through the individual, uh, anyone working within sustainability, whether that's someone leading up a sustainability strategy, whether that's someone working for an NGO or a charity that's trying to connect with businesses to drive change, what, what skills are they going to have to develop over these coming years to, to help deliver those changes we've just talked about? Michael? Well, I think the, the connection and the connectivity, I suppose, between a sustainability professional and a business commercial professional and how the story and the risk and the opportunity around sustainability in all, in all senses that we've just discussed, from diversity to human rights to climate and water and plastics and all the rest, linking the two and making it relevant to the commercial business and, 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 and making it very clear what the business value is and the business risk is, is a very important skill. So bridging the, 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 between the sustainability professional and the commercial interests of a business. Mm. And once that's embedded and once it's a, in, to become part of that core business rationale and they understand and they recognise that it's absolutely core to the growth of their business, which I think it will be increasingly, as we've just discussed, 
then I think that's a big challenge for our sustainability profession. Great. And Ruth, last word from you, same question, the, 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 the sustainability professional, how, how are they going to evolve in terms of skills? So I think building on what just Michael's, Michael just said, I think it's about language and understanding the language of the, the business and equally the NGO and everybody speaking the right sort of language in the right sort of forums to the right stakeholders. Um, and I think positivity, I think you know we've got to be in an era of this is positive, we can do this, let's be innovative and, and drive change. Brilliant. And I think you can just about hear outside, it sounds like the next session's happening. I think it's actually another case of collaboration, Tesco and WWF on, on this case. So more learnings to be had there. And you've kind of really convinced me of the, the power of partnerships. Uh, so I think I'm going to try and find one more speaker today and then convene with the rest of uh, our editorial team to see how we've been working together on day <laughs> one of the forum. Uh, thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thanks. So yeah, following that chat with uh, Walter Aiden and Diageo got me reflecting that <clears throat> perhaps the ED team hasn't been the best team player, so to speak. We've been so busy in our respective uh, job roles during this forum that we haven't really had a chance to, to catch up with anyone else, and you guys must be absolutely sick of listening to my voice. So I'm pretty much going to hand over to our senior reporter, uh, Sarah George. Um, Sarah's been pretty much keeping the um, the live blog alive, so to speak, today, um, and has been in sessions, speaking to some of the delegates and some of the speakers. So, Sarah, let's hand over to you. What, you know, give us a whistle-stop tour of your, your day one at SLF. Well, I feel like I haven't seen you guys just as much, so I don't know how much help um, I'm going to be, but whistle-stop tour is that it's just incredibly busy. Um, and everyone's chatting to each other, everyone's engaging with the questions, everyone's talking to the speakers, even if it is now last thing in the afternoon. And I think the speakers are resorting to um, some light stretching and making people shout net zero um, to get people to listen. But it's, it's honestly been a much more high level day than that. And I have been really lucky to sit in on some of the sessions um today um as you as we've discussed mary robinson really set the tone um for the day with her with her keynote speech um she has this uncanny ability to sort of praise progress so far and not not belittle it um while not telling people off for how far mm. they have to go but empowering them to bridge that gap that will be needed in the future um that was built upon really well with jim skier's speech which was all about everything happening on all fronts so we can no longer be weighing up either or solutions or who should act first that everything needs to be firing um, on all cylinders um, this really set the stage I think for our panel discussion so just looking through some of the titles that we've had that I've sat in on um, we had a session on rewriting our business climate action plan to respond to the um, to respond to the climate emergency and I thought this was just a really great session it's a, it's something that will be facing everyone really no matter how long you've been involved in sustainability companies that have never gotten involved before now have a legal requirement to do so um, and massive pressure from all other parts of society really to do so and those that have been involved with this discussion for, for decades are now having to radically change um, their approach as well. You mentioned action on all fronts and that's been the case for the, the ED team too so this evening you're off to 
a, a roundtable discussion, that's correct? Yes, it is. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a really high-level discussion. And the theme for tonight's roundtable is going to be igniting a decade of business transformation. Um, this is something I think the mood for this was really felt at the beginning of January, you know, sort of coming back into the office, um, fresh from Christmas, New Year's resolutions, um, but things in this field move so fast that it's easy to feel like by February, you, you know, that <laughs> we might not have got started on some of those um, core projects. So we're going to be talking about how you can define sustainability um, in the 2020s. We've, we've only got 10 years left to meet the SDGs. Um, we, we're being told of deadlines to avert the climate crisis by the UN and other bodies on what feels like a weekly basis. Um, new definitions and buzzwords are emerging at a pace and we're yet to have taxonomies or definitions for some of them so I feel like that will be a really um, interesting discussion and we'll also be um, talking about some of the key ways which we can deliver against those new facets of sustainable business specifically net zero strategies um, collaboration and reframing the sustainability professional where where should they sit what skills do they need um, and and so on so while it has been a really long day already I think this is going to be a really high energy and high level um, event I've got the RSVP list in front of me Ooh. Um, so just some of the companies what we've got coming along include PepsiCo, um, O2, Unilever, Mondelez, um, and we've got a couple of representatives from the finance community and then from CDP as well. So it's, it looks like it's going to be a really great discussion. Yeah, a nice, a nice mix. Well, I, I'm expecting a, a thorough recap tomorrow morning for, for the second part of this podcast episode, day two. Um, but yeah, you've got, to, you've got to shoot off a bit earlier than... Uh, than myself and James, um, you've got to get ferried, over, not literally ferried over, but electric you've got to taxied get over. electric electric taxied over to that round table. <laughs> uh, so I'll let you do that. Um, I'll try and grab James to get his his thoughts on the day once he's well once he's stopped shouting net zero at everyone and getting them all cheery <laughs> for the last sessions. Um, but I did mention that um, the uh, the next session was was Tesco's and, and WWF and, and WWF is exactly who I've been able to get for the last interview on this podcast. In fact, that person uh, from WWF is with me now so uh emma keller is head of food commodities um at wdf so emma thank you for joining me uh pretty late in the day on uh day one of the sustainable leaders forum uh so for those uh unaware of what head of food commodities entails at wdf why won't you start with a bit of a, a brief about your job and how specifically that interacts with the business community of course, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so I lead a team at WWF that are focused on transforming our food system. We all know that our food system is broken um, and is leading to huge environmental and social impact. And so the team I'm, I'm leading at WWF UK in particular is looking at how we, how we transform the food system through markets, so changing corporate behaviour through policy, so working with both UK government and also overseas government to ensure that we have the right enabling conditions for businesses and, and citizens to make progress, and also in, in culture, how do we change consumer and customer behaviour um, to make better choices. So that's, yeah, that's broadly what we focus on at the moment. Brilliant. And one of those corporates that you've clearly engaged quite well with is uh, it's Tesco. Um, so you were on the session um, just before the Ask Us Anything one with uh, Lawrence Webb, the responsible sourcing manager um, at, the, at that supermarket. Uh, 
I managed to catch glimpses of that. I had to kind of drop in and out to, to speak to other people, get some work done up on the website. Uh, so a recap of, of um, I believe it was how you're halving the amount of soy in the average mm. shop in baskets. Yeah, so yeah, WF and Tesco um, formed a partnership back in November 2018, so just over a year ago. And the aim of our partnership is to halve the environmental impact of the average UK shopping basket. Um, bold ambition, some big, hairy, audacious goals we have to meet there, but but incredibly exciting. And many people ask me, what brings together WBF and Tesco? Um, so it's no coincidence that WF, one of the biggest, uh, world's biggest conservation organisations, has partnered with one of the world's biggest retailers to with this ambition of halving the impact of the of the shopping basket. Um, and we've got a lot of work to do, but a really big opportunity. And so how have we, just a bit about how we've gone about that really, is um, coming together with this ambition, we've we've looked at, well, what is the average shopping basket? And we've used um, Tesco club card data and other industry sources to look at what products, what food products in particular are customers putting in their baskets. And we've come up with what we're calling 20 barometer products, which cut across fresh products like um, berries and fresh vegetables and fruit, um, as well as some packaged products like biscuits and bread and Coca-Cola and rice. Um, and these are all things that consumers are, are, are purchasing every day. And then what we've done is look at, well, what are the big impacts that these products are driving at? And we've landed on seven flagship issues, things like climate change and deforestation to impacts of packaging, food waste and diets, particularly around sustainable diets. And across these different flagship issues, impacts. We've then looked at what are the key underlying metrics that we want to track together in the partnership to ensure that we're meeting the goal of halving the impact. And really it's going to be the sum of these metrics that determine how close we're getting to halving the impact of the shopping basket. And some of these metrics, for example, in deforestation, we have two. One is around the percentage of palm oil that's coming from palm oil importers that are 100% deforestation free. For soy, it's looking at the percentage of landscapes and areas that are verified as deforestation free. Because really we recognise the scale of the challenge here and that we need to work collectively. It's not just about WF and Tesco together, but we need to work with others across the industry if we're really going to tackle the impact here of eliminating deforestation from our supply chains. So a hugely exciting partnership, lots to do. Where we are now, we're just over a year in. And we've now defined all these metrics, we've been public about it, and we've started the work to, um, to design our interventions to tackle them. And this spring, we'll be publishing our first baseline of where we are and what impact we've had so far, and also inviting others to join us um, and, and work in other platforms to ensure that we can start to drive the change we need to see. Exciting times, and I'll certainly be on the lookout for that uh, that spring update as well. Um, and we spoke to uh, Diageo and WaterAid earlier on this podcast, kind of a similar collaborative um, partnership between a corporate and a charity, and they were very much focusing on kind of water scarcity. Um, it seems like the work you're doing with Tesco around combating deforestation is an example we're seeing of businesses looking outside their own four walls looking down the value chain um, and it's pretty it's pretty obvious that the 
food system at the moment is inherently a bit broken. Um, there's perhaps not enough of that value chain um, bird's eye view, so to speak. So how do you think businesses can really start to get to, to grips with looking beyond their operations and thinking, actually, we have a role to play to, to fix an entire system here? Yeah, we've heard it a lot today that we know government policy is incredibly important, but that it's slow and it's cumbersome. Um, and so businesses really need to step up to fill that gap. So, and I think business, it's great to hear about some of the, the business NGO partnerships and when they really work is when they come together with a unique proposition that only those two organisations together can solve. So that's why it's great to hear about um, Diageo and WaterAid and also WF and Tesco. Only us together can really start to um, put in place the structures and, and processes we need to see to halve the impact of the basket. I think businesses more broadly need to be looking ahead to what their purpose is, what their function will be in society when we're facing a climate and ecological breakdown. How are they going to be a business that continues to succeed and to thrive in, in, those, facing, uh, in those challenges that we're facing? And therefore they need to set their ambitions to match that. They need to be bold ambitions and they need to do it in a transparent way. Not just reporting on when things are going well, but actually being open mm. about the challenges they're facing and when things are going badly and inviting others to join. And in that, in that vein, then we need them to be collaborative. And that's just not with partners that are nice and easy to work with, but those that are going to be challenging, that are going to be tough. And actually, when it feels a bit uncomfortable, it's probably the best partnership. So that's, that's where I see businesses really need to step up and work together in the next, in the next few years. Great. And obviously, the, um, the theme of, of today at the Leaders Forum, well, not just at Leaders Forum, just in general with Boris Johnson, kind of kick-starting the, the COP26 climate conference and a year of climate action, he's, he's called it, um, I think, businesses tend to look a bit more longer term and it's like a decade um it's probably where we're looking at 2030 with the sdgs for example you've touched on the kind of perhaps the near return transformations of businesses over the next couple of years but in 10 years um, i'm kind of asking you to look into a crystal ball here but what do you see would be fundamentally different about sustainable business by the time we get to the 2030s I think we're going to see uh, some businesses fail if they don't move fast enough and go far enough to clean up not just their own business but, but in the sector. Um, and so it's going to be an interesting journey over the next decade. We're going to need some serious rethinking about how businesses operate. Our throwaway culture, our short-termism, our quick wins are just not going to cut it in, in the next decade. So it's going to be those businesses that really do radically transform their processes, their systems, that look more at circular economy, reuse, um, that start to drive serious efficiencies that change indeed from product-focused um, businesses to more uh, service based um, industries, they're going to be the ones that really come through. And we're already seeing some of those thrive at the moment. So more of that on the horizon, please. Um, I look forward to see which businesses uh, react fast enough. And I imagine the skill set of the people leading those strategies is probably going to have to uh, change somewhat as well. Absolutely. We're going to need to see professionals, not just sustainability professionals, but professionals in organisations adapt and grow radically. And that's going to be looking at how they genuinely translate science and evidence into action. 
So how do we take all of these findings coming from, whether it's the new IPCC reports or the Eat Lancet report, which shows that we need to radically change our diets over the coming generation, how do we translate that into action and, and business, um, business growth, essentially? How do they also tell stories, stories through their products, through their services, through their corporate purpose, to inspire and bring people along so that citizens of the world want to support businesses that are doing the right thing and that they then can continue to thrive. And then, of course, how do professionals within these organisations work with competitors, work with unusual clients or um, partners in their supply chains to challenge one another, to bring each other along, to um, stress test different innovations, different moves, to, to essentially come up with the best solutions to the big, big problems we're trying to face. I think that's exactly where we need to start to get to. Interesting. Yeah, we haven't heard much on competitive collaboration or I mean sustainability has always had a notion that it's pre-competitive I think now the public is aware of it perhaps it's maybe not anymore but that's a really interesting note to finish on Emma because um, I realise there is a drinks reception going on and um, there's the last <laughs> chance of networking for the day that I'm keeping you from so thank you for your time no worries thank you for having me and I was going to try and do a wrap up with the rest of the ED team but as you all know Sarah's been whisked away in, a, in an electric uh, taxi to go to the round table and well James was aware there was a, a drinks reception so he's, he's a lost cause we're not gonna be able to get hold of him um, so that's pretty much it for today's episode uh, as I mentioned this is a two-part episode so while this is going live we'll probably be recording part two uh, for day two of the sustainability leaders forum we'll be opening with um, some big keynote speeches from the likes of uh, TerraCycle, Unilever and Fermanetch um, and I've been tasked yet again with um, speaking to a handful of speakers to really get a, a kind of temperature check of not just what the forum's talking about but where business leadership is heading so do look out for part two uh, in the meantime you can access all of our podcast episodes uh, via itunes or spotify you can also search for it via sustainable business covered on the ed.net website so hopefully i'll you'll be hearing from me tomorrow uh, but until then it's goodbye